Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. I'm excited for this morning's message as uh, I've been preparing it for three weeks now. <laughs> I want to thank you all for your prayers, and I want to thank Jeff for stepping in and Frankie for stepping in. And a couple of these things were planned. Some of them were not planned. Um, uh, I am much better. I, as some of you know, I had an issue. I don't know what happened, but my, my hip went out, and I, just, I was trying to get in the pulpit on Sunday morning. I just couldn't do it. I just, I was trying so hard. And like at 6.30 in the morning, I'm calling Frankie and I'm like, dude, <laughs> I can't do this. And, and, and there he was, right? Three hours later in the pulpit, just bringing the word. And I just, I thank God for all of us, every one of us. Now God has brought all of the gifts and talents that he's assembled here in this thing we call the Springs. And, uh, it is a joy to come together and just hear stories and, 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 you know, what's God doing in your life? And everybody has more to share about what's going on. And uh, all of it revolves around one thing, abiding in Christ. You know, I was praying the other day. I was sharing about Jesus the other day. I was just, you know, I got a word from the Lord that day and I was trying to obey. I was trying to walk it out and God showed up, right? And uh, I love that. That's, that's a little bit where we're going to go today, although in Luke chapter 14, uh, we're going to get a series of uh, false professions of faith. You know, there's this thing called a, a negative feedback loop, okay? When you're trying to operate something, this is that what artificial intelligence is built on and what computers run on, but actually it's how God has built us. We run off of a negative feedback loop. The human brain is a negative feedback loop system. Uh, it means that whenever there's a difference between what a person experiences in rea and a ra reality that is different from that ideal set point as God has created us, um, there's an urge to behave, to correct the situation created in the brain. Uh, classic one is your hypothalamus, okay? One of your uh, glands in your brain. And, and if it doesn't get enough oxygen, it tells the heart, you got to beat more, right? But it's not that you just get positive feedback and everything goes great. I'm happy, I'll just stay happy. It's actually the negatives that give us course correction, in our lives. And we're going to see some of those negatives today brought out in people gathering in the name of Christ, gathering around Christ, gathering for the cause of religion, and yet some of the ways that they go off track, if you would. So let's begin in chapter 14, verse 1. Now it happened, catch you up where we've been, right? Jesus has rejected now the Jewish religion, the Jewish religious leaders. The synagogue will never see him go back to the synagogue again. He has set his face for Jerusalem, for he knows that he must go and pay the debt for man's sin. And so his focus is all about doing that for which he was sent. And as much as he's been a faithful Jewish boy his whole life, Going to Sabbath and joining with all of that, he's finally just, you know, done with this false, this hypocritical religion, right? And so it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath that they watched him closely. He's still hanging out with people. He's still reaching out to people. He still cares about people, even the Pharisees. And so this is that eating bread on the Sabbath, okay? It's, a, it's kind of a special deal. It's like a Sunday meal, right? A lot of people get together for lunch after church, right, kind of thing. And this is something that's been celebrated all through the years. Now, on the Sabbath, they're not allowed to cook. They're not allowed to do uh, any kind of physical form of work. And so they would have bread. They would have things that have been prepared beforehand. And it was a kind of a holy meal, a special meal. And Jesus is invited to the Pharisee's house for the meal. Now, Jesus knows full well what's going to transpire 
in this meal, but he goes nevertheless, right? To seek and save that which is lost, to bring light, to bring salt into their lives, if by any means some would be saved. And we read in the book of Acts that there were many Pharisees who did follow Jesus. So I don't want to paint them all with a broad brush, just like we are subject to do in our society. Oh, you know, all those politicians. Some of them go to our church. And they're good Christians. And they're in there swinging the sword. They're doing battle. They're standing up for the cross of Christ. And so all these Pharisees, they're not all bad guys. We know Nicodemus. We know Joseph of Arimathea. These guys were there in, in God's plan. And so he goes to dinner at a Pharisee's house to eat bread on the Sabbath, and they watched him closely. This pretty much sets up the rest of the meal. There's this funny uh, play or, uh, yeah, it was a play, uh, a, a movie made back in 1942, but the name, the title lingers. It's called The Man Who Came to Dinner. Okay, and most of you probably have not seen the movie, but you've seen now many versions of it. But it's a biting look at the world of celebrity elitism, where this man comes in out from the cold. Actually, he was injured, and he's a pompous, arrogant guy. And he comes into this home, they bring him in for dinner, and they're pompous, arrogant people. And it's a satirical comedy. It's just this thing where everybody is ripping off everybody else's false masks, right? And, and just bringing them down to side. You're not all that. You're not all that. And it's, it's quite funny because in anything that's funny, right, what do we usually laugh at? That thing that's in us, right? And we see, yeah, I play that game a little bit too, right? Um, and so there's some there, it's going to be a tense meal, we can see already, and they watched him closely. Maybe that happens to you. Maybe you're the Christian husband and wife that goes to the family gathering of non-Christians, and they watch you closely. I know that happens to me from time to time. I'm a pastor, so somehow I'm supposed to be holier than, than other people or whatever, right? And I do recognize that I am supposed to be holy, okay? We all are supposed to be holy, but we recognize each and every one of us, we fall short. But people watch, right? They're just looking for some way they might trap you, and that's what this meal is going to turn into. Verse 2, and behold, anytime you see the word behold, the Bible's telling you now, observe. This is the setup. This is the circumstance. Behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that which has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. Seriously? You're being questioned about your fitness to become a Supreme Court judge, and somebody says, can you tell me what a woman is? And you can say, I don't know. I got a little political on you there, but you feel the weight of what's going on. These are the scribes. These are the Pharisees. These are the leaders of the synagogue. They're the people that know the law inside and out, and they can't tell you if it's all right to pull your animal out of a pit on the Sabbath day. You see, Jesus says, is it lawful? And really what this is, is a tug of war between the law of Moses, the first five books of our Bible, and the Mishnah, which is the oral law, the traditions that have grown up around the Bible. And according to the Mishnah, the oral societal cultural laws that they had put in place for themselves, no, you should do no work on the Sabbath, nothing no kindling of fire, nothing. And yet, Moses clearly, in the book of Exodus, says, if your animal falls in a pit, you can pull them out on the Sabbath. It's, it's in there in black and white. But they can't answer. The reason they can't answer, it's because of this guy. This guy with dropsy. 
Raise your hand if you know what dropsy is. <laughs> Amen, right? I looked it up too, right? I know I've, I've heard this. Okay, so um, it comes from an, a, an older English word called dropsical or hydropsica. And in that, you might get a little word hydro for water. Dropsy is a condition where your tissues swell with water. We call it edema. And you might be familiar with that, right? And so it could be in a swollen appendage or it could be your whole body, but it's a medical condition and it's not good. It can lead to death, okay? Um, and so this person that is at this meal, they're watching closely. What do you think they're watching to see? Is he going to heal this man on the Sabbath? Because we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, right? So we should know this by now. If you've been reading through the Gospel of Luke or the Gospels, already we've seen seven cases in uh, Luke chapter 4. We saw Jesus cast out a demon. Later in Luke 4, he healed a fever, Peter Peter's mother-in-law. In John chapter 5, he's already healed the lame man. All these on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath. Uh, in uh, Luke 6, he allowed his disciples to pluck grain and eat it on the Sabbath. Um, he healed a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath in the synagogue in Luke 6. He healed a crippled woman with a demon in Luke chapter 13. And in John 9, prior to this place, he healed a man born blind. So clearly, we kind of know what's going to happen here. It's a setup. They've brought this guy in need to lunch, not because they want to bless this poor guy, invite him to the meal, but they're just trying to catch Jesus. So he asked them this question, and they can't answer. What this is is a case of false piety. Piety is kind of an old-fashioned word for saying holiness or godliness, okay? You're all that in a bag of chips. You're just the religious, you know, superstar. You're pious and holy. And yet, when what really comes out here is there's no kindness. This is cruelty. They're making sport of this person who needs healing. And Jesus is going to call them out on this. And so this is the first of uh, a number of things, false piety. It happens at church. Even today. We need to be careful for these things. Again, the negative feedback loop. Okay? You have your you're, you're perfectly in balance, things are good, you're peaceful and you're calm, and something comes and, and, and ruins the status quo, and we need to get things back again. And yet, a person who would come into our fellowship, and I just listed a whole bunch of different things, right? Demon-possessed or blind or uh, edema or, or whatever, or maybe they're just kind of a social misfit and an outcast. Is there room here? For them, I see empty seats, and all the rest of you fit the thing I just described. We're all social misfits and outcasts, but God welcomed us to the table, and we need to be making sure that we welcome others to the table. Now, truly, the guy didn't come to Jesus and just stay the same. He changed. When you come to Jesus, there will be a change, Right? And, and, and that's one of the things that we look for in a person. You know, you may have come in here at one point with some kind of baggage, some kind of issue. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a rage thing. Maybe it's a, uh, just, a, I don't know, all the different things that plague different kinds of people. But you shouldn't stay there. You come to meet Jesus, right? And you don't have that false piety. Somehow you dress yourself up and now I'm all good. I just put on my Christian clothes. I use my Christian words and I'm all good. No, you get real, you get raw, you get transparent, you confess, and then God does the work, and He changes you, He heals you. Verse 7, so 
He told a parable to those who were invited, and when he noted how they chose the blessed places, saying, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin to shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay? And literally, humbled is to be put down. Just to be, it'll, it would be very embarrassing. We were at a wedding yesterday. Uh, uh, Mike Kelly and Faith Clark and hallelujah, you know, it was a wonderful thing. But there's the table up front, the dais, whatever you want to call it, right? And that's where the bride and the groom and the bride's parties sit. In some cultures, it would be the bride and groom, the parents and the grandparents. But nevertheless, these are the dignitaries and there's a table for them. And almost all of us know that you don't sit at that table. You don't walk in and sit down there because somebody's going to kick you out, right? I had the embarrassing thing that happened to me multiple times in the Philippines where the grandparents and the parents would be sitting there and they would kick grandpa and grandma out and tell Cheryl and I to sit up there <laughs> as guests of honor. It's like, well, that's really awkward, right? But in either case, we didn't go sit at the table, right? Um, it was interesting at the um, wedding yesterday all the tables to the back of the room are the ones that filled up first. <laughs> and then the people who arrived later sat in the front seats, right? It's kind of like that. It, it happens in church sometimes too, right? People are like, yeah, you, you save the, the, well, the front rows, right, for the latecomers. And everybody knows the latecomers, they're, they don't care. They're, they just walk right up, right? Now they're, they're just as embarrassed as the people who, I, I'm going to sit in the back right now, right, before... Um, this is, just to be sure, this is not that. You can sit wherever you want, and nobody's going to kick you out of your seat here, okay? We're all equal before the Lord. But in Jesus' day and at these meals, there was a hierarchy, the way that they would actually recline around the table. They would just lean on pillows, but different places, stations at the table would have different significance. Like some people in their homes, in their dining rooms, they may have the the head of the table where Papa sits, right? That kind of a situation. Uh, this is one of those kinds of things, but he's telling a parable, okay? So this isn't an actual story, but it's a story that we should be able to learn a heavenly lesson from, how things ought to work in the kingdom of God. He told a parable to those who were invited, and he noted that those who chose the best place, saying to them, when you were invited, by anyone to a feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him, right? And when he comes in, he says, oh, I'm sorry, you're going to have to get up and leave. How embarrassing in this is this, right? And in this, Jesus is exposing this idea of false popularity, that somehow you can be or somehow you can engineer your status, your place, your position, your prestige amongst other people you know. Um, and so, some people would try to arrive early, and the way that they would behave would be quite abysmal. But he says in verse 10, when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invites you comes, that he may say to you, friend, go up, go higher. You know, in First Peter chapter 5, uh, in verse 5, he says to them, um, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He might exalt you in due time, right? And let God be the one to exalt you, but your heart should be that of being humble. Paul writes to the church in Philippi in uh, Philippians 2, beginning at verse 3, he says, "...let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind." Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others, esteeming others better than yourself. 
he would go on to say, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus could have picked the front seat every day. He was God, but he didn't. He didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And then he goes on to say that then God highly exalted him, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now that's true popularity when God exalts you, right? But the path up is down. He would be first, must be last. He who would uh, be the ruler of all must become the servant, the slave of all. And so this is kind of that picture of what's going on. But these people gathered at the table, they're jostling for position. They're trying to be important. This is as close in many ways to the kingdom of heaven as they're ever going to get. They're, they're having this, uh, I, I want to kind of say a religious lunch, right? It's Sunday lunch, right? And the holy people are there and they're all trying to get best position in the kingdom, so to speak. Um, he goes on to say, verse 12, then he also said to them who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I didn't mean just to pour cold water on your after-church plans to go to lunch with your friends. It's all right to go to people's houses. It's all right to have dinners with your friends. But in this case, Jesus is talking about a feast. If it's a show, if it's a special thing, and you're just doing this to get brownie points in front of your friends, and then you get invited back to their house, and you, it's this... Uh, echo chamber where everybody's just like a, a goodwill pat on the back club, right? Uh, I'm so glad you're here. Pat, pat, pat. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. Aren't we blessed that we're here? Yeah, we're blessed that we're here. Isn't it great that we're Christians? Oh, it's so wonderful that we're Christians. I'm so glad I'm a Christian. I'm so glad you're a Christian. Now, I'm not, I don't want you to think that it's bad to think you're a Christian and that's a good thing. That is a good thing. And that your brothers and sisters are as well. But truly, if you take that title, Christ, seriously, you'll always have a broken heart for the outcast, for those who haven't been invited in, for those who still need to come to the banquet. And this is what this is about, not false hospitality that we just send out invitations and all the best people come and we can feel proud about ourselves but that God lays out the table and whoever will can come. I pray that's the kind of church that we are, that the door is open and that people can come in and have a seat with Jesus. One of the things that's interesting in all of these um, negative feedbacks, right? There's the uh, false piety, the false popularity, here the false hospitality. The truth is right at the table, Jesus is right there in the midst of them, right? And yet they're looking for all of these other trappings to somehow validate themselves and make themselves feel good about what they're doing. Now, it's wonderful that we come together as a fellowship and declare the glories of God and what has Jesus done and, you know, tell our Jesus stories and all those kinds of a thing. But if you're coming here thinking somehow um, that you're better than the guy that didn't come to church this morning, or that by being here you get brownie points with God. You can't make God love you any more than he already loves you. While you were yet sinners, he put his son on the cross for you. And so we come out of a heart of worship, appreciation, adoration, thanksgiving, 
praise, worship. That's why we come. And not to somehow pat ourselves on the back. He says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, or the crippled, those people who have a condition, such as the man with edema, right? He's saying, that's not a bad thing that you invited the guy to dinner. The bad thing is that you used him as bait to try to trap me, right? That's not a good thing. And, you know, you could go out on the street and say, I brought, I was down at, well, I'm going to use an example because it's something I've never seen done. But I was down at Walmart on my way to church this morning. There was a guy out there with a cardboard sign saying, we'll work for money. I told him, get in the car. We're going to go to church. We'll have dinner afterwards. And you come and you bring him in, not because you think he needs Jesus, but somehow you're going to get brownie points for bringing the guy. See how that just kind of, it doesn't, it doesn't ring true? It's like your, your motives aren't right. When you give a feast, invite the poor the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I just love that. You know, you don't have to worry about keeping the score or what kind of reward you're going to get. Do you not know all the glory that awaits you in heaven? I mean, it's amazing when you think. I love Ephesians chapter 1 where it goes through 14 verses of all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that we have. And that's just one of dozens of places through the Scripture that talks about how fantastic eternity with God is going to be. And we don't need to work to add to that. I want a bigger mansion. I'm going to work harder. Jesus kind of just showed us, you want a big mansion? You're going to have to go low. You know, and, and again, so then you get other people, they have false humility. What are you doing, bro? Oh, I'm working on my mansion. <laughs> That's not how it works either. Anything that draws attention to you and off of Christ is moving in the wrong direction. So, uh, verse 15 here, we're picking up, and this will deal with false security. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things and said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to them, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and has sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come, for all things are now ready. So there's this big feast. It's a big supper. It required lots of preparations. The invitations already went out. The RSVPs, it's not like nobody knew the time. They all knew they were supposed to be ready, um, and, but they weren't. It says in verse 18, but they were all with one accord began to make excuses, right? Benjamin Franklin is famous for saying, people who are good at making excuses generally aren't good for much of anything else. They all began to make excuses. The first said to him, I brought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. For starters, what kind of a person buys a piece of land sight unseen, right? Especially in their day. You have to make sure you have to go. We, we've got, um, I just forgot the word for it. When you do a title search and you, you make sure that the property is legit, you know. And so, what's the word? Somebody help me. It'll come back to me. When I say it, you'll all go, oh, yeah, that thing that you have to do when you buy a house. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, I have to go look at my land, okay? Verse 19, another said, I have bought five yoke of ox, and I'm going to test them first. I ask you to have me excused. It's like buying a car without taking a test drive, right? These are just lame excuses. Oh, what, what day is it going to be? Uh, Thursday. Oh, that's the day I have to wash my hair. Remember that one? Verse 20, still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Bring your wife right? All the different reasons they have, right? In Luke chapter 8, Jesus is teaching on the parable of the sower and the seed, and he explains it. It says in verse 11 of Luke 8, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God, and he goes down for the seed that falls on the rocky soil, on the thorny soil. But this is the one I think that describes most people. It says in verse 14, now the ones that fell among the thorns are those when they have heard go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. 
And we have all these excuses. The um, excuse of my profession. I, I have things I have to do, the cares of the world, my possessions, my riches, or my pleasures, my affection. And all these things that say, you know, I can't really attend the meal, okay? Now, to kind of put it in position here, where is Jesus? He's at a banquet. He's at the Sabbath meal. The Pharisees are gathered, and he's been put on trial. He's being questioned, and they're displaying all of their false piety, all of their false popularity, all their false hospitality, and here their false security, that somehow they're assured of a place in heaven. Do you notice what the guy said, one of the people sitting at the table? It's a tense moment, right? Jesus heals the man with dropsy, and then uh, he starts saying, man, don't take the first seat, take the low seat, and the tension's getting higher and higher and higher. And finally, you get into verse 15, and it's kind of like Dallas a lot of times. We'll be out talking about this, that, or the other, and at some point, the conversation gets a little bit weird. And Dallas will say something like, look, this is a good glass of water. What are you doing? You're, you're trying to change the conversation, change the channel. It's getting too tense. It's getting too weird in here, right? And so what is this guy that's sitting at the table, the Sabbath table, breaking ted, bread, the, the religious dinner, they're all gathered in the kingdom of God, so to speak. And he says, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God, right? Sure is a good glass of water trying to change the subject, right? And yet in all of this, as we can see in Jesus' reaction of telling this parable about all these people who were invited to the meal but couldn't be bothered, this business of saying, blessed is he shall eat bread in the kingdom of heaven. You know, we as Christians, we instantly probably jump to Revelation 19 and the marriage supper of the Lamb. But they didn't have Revelation 19. God had not revealed that to John. And they're just looking at this Sabbath meal as this, this picture of the kingdom come. And they're the chosen, right? Blessed is he who's sitting at this table. Aren't we fortunate to be here? Blessed is he who shall break bread in the kingdom of heaven. And in a way, it's kind of like they do down south. How many, anybody live down south or have, have been from down south? And when somebody comes up to you and says, well, bless your heart. Some of you know that, right? That's not a compliment, and they're not praying for you. <laughs> that's a put down. And that's kind of, in a way, here's Jesus trying to help them see, I am the king, and this is the kingdom, and we are at the table together, and you're all worried about the trappings, and who's invited, and who's got the best seat, and who gets to eat bread, and it's like, well, blessed are they who sit at the table, right? And, and it's like, do you not realize Jesus is sitting right here? And it's kind of an insult. So Jesus responds, you know what? There's a lot of y'all who were invited, ain't going to be there. You've got every excuse in the world why you can't worship God. You can't join him in the celebration, in the victory, in the kingdom. He goes on to say... Um, Verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to his master, and the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes in the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. If you've been paying attention, this is the third time Jesus brings up, bring in the lame, the maimed, and the blind. They're the ones that started this trajectory. They're the ones that created the tension, and he's just bringing it up over and over again. They mentioned it in verse 2 and verse 13, and here again, Jesus is talking about how you would treat those that have less than you. Verse 22, and the servant said, Master, it's done as you commanded, and there still is room. Then the master said to his servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that the house may be filled. Constrain them, press them in. You need to be emphatic. You need to be passionate. You need to come. There's a meal. You're invited. The king is hosting it. It's going to be great. Is that our heart as a church? There's a, there's a couple scenes in that movie, Jesus Revolution, that we went to that are, you know, they really 
hit me, and I hold them close to my heart, but probably one of the most, and one that is in my brain right as I'm thinking here, is where the hippie, Lonnie Frisbee, goes to the pastor, Chuck Smith. He's in his house, and he's trying to explain this whole hate Ashbury, Jesus freaks, what's going on? And he looks at Pastor Chuck Smith, and he goes, do you understand what it is to be desperate? Desperate for God, for healing, for health, for hope, for life. If, if you've never experienced that, it's going to be hard for you to reach the desperate people, right? And it pierced Pastor Chuck's heart. It changed the course of that church. And, and because of it, a lot of us are sitting here today. But it comes out of a heart of desperation, passion, empathy, compassion, being constrained. You need to come. The king has invited you. All are welcome. There's lots of room. There's more than enough room. Well, this is what Jesus is kind of saying. I think it's interesting in this picture where the master invites people to the supper, but they don't want to come because they have excuses. Who would in this parable, who would Jesus be if you were trying to describe him? He'd be the master inviting people, right? And yet it says he's angry. He's not happy with these self-satisfied, holier-than-thou, religious elites who just don't have room to bring in those that really need. You know, most of us, well, I, I would say all of us, I'm going to say all of us, and I'm going to be right too. All of us have so much more than about 7.9 billion people walking the face of the earth, right? Out of about 8 billion, we're, even the poorest of us have so much more. And I think it's just something that we need to have in our heart is that idea of how can I take what you've given me, Lord, and pass it on, pay it forward, share it, spread it around. Do you know that you can't outgive God no matter what you give? He continues to backfill. He's looking for the, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for those through whom he might find himself strong. And when he finds a person that'll take what he gives them and pass it on, he gives them more and more and more. That's kind of how the kingdom works. And so he compels them to come in, that my house might be filled. Verse 24, for I say to you that none of these men who were invited shall taste my supper. Now again, this is a, a strong condemnation towards the religion of Israel, right? Towards the religious leaders and those who became so self-serving, they were no longer a light to the Gentiles. They were no longer... Um, even welcoming their own Messiah. And so this is some pretty strong condemnation. Finally, verse 25, now great multitudes went with them and he turned and said to them. So he's left the house, okay? He's out on the road again, face set for Jerusalem. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother and his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, people who have read this for the first time or even the you know, 15th time, but they haven't really dug in and understand. It sounds like, man, what is this? Hating my family? Hating my life? Is this talking about becoming suicidal? No, 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 no. No, not. That's not what it is. It's far from that. The idea of hate is to prefer against. The opposite of it is to prefer for. There's a Greek word for that. It's called agape. When you prefer others, you esteem others more than yourself, then you are in love, loving. But Jesus is saying here, you need to love me first. You need to return to your first love. That's really what it comes down to. Not that you have to hate your family and not that you have to hate yourself. That's, that's not humility. 
If all you're doing is going around saying, man, I'm just lousy and I have no skills and no talents and I really blew it last week and that witness, I did a terrible thing and I didn't do any of this. And all. You know what's the common thread in all of that? I, 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 I. You're all focused on yourself. True humility, you don't even see yourself. You're just a vessel pouring out grace and love to people around you. And so... This is kind of that picture of just being that vessel and uh, do, um, going forward. If you want to be his disciple, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If you haven't heard it yet, let me be the one to tell you now that following Jesus involves dying to yourself, to your id. That's a psychological term to your personality, who you think you are. You have to die to who you think you are. In psychology, they have a word for people who are just all wrapped up in themselves, their personality, trying to become cool, trying to become groovy, trying to be whatever, right? People who are constantly focused on themselves. When it comes to a point where you're obsessed with it, they call it somebody who can't get their mind off their ids. They're just idiots. That's the little definition of idiot, okay? And, and, and you have to get your eyes off yourself. In 2 Corinthians 4, this is what it really looks like, okay? Your esteem, your value comes from Christ. Not anything that you add to the equation, but how much He was willing to pay to purchase you. It says in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 4, but we have this treasure, this gift, this blessed hope, this indwelling Spirit of God. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Again, the way up is down. The way to life is through the cross. And as we humble ourselves, in due time, Christ or God will resurrect us. We will, we will be exalted. But this is kind of that picture. Um, Jesus is saying, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 28, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Okay? You have to start with first things first. Before you even start, you have to make sure you've got what it takes to finish it. Do you, this morning, have what it takes to get to heaven? You know what it takes to get to heaven? Jesus Christ. Do you have Jesus Christ? Have you died to yourself, confessed Him as Lord, given control of your life over to God? If you do, you've got everything you need right now to go all the way, to finish the race, okay? And that's, that's the idea. You need to count the cost. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to recognize He's already finished that work which He began in you. And you go, good, paid in full. Let's get this thing done. Or, verse 31, what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegate and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. You're going into warfare. You're going to be pressed. You're going to be crushed. You're going to be struck down, and you're going to win. Because your king is Jesus, and your victory is certain 
and it's secure, but you need to count the cost, and you need to look at the battlefield, and you need to get a real sober head on and go, we're going in. It's going to get hairy. It's going to get crazy. But you know what? It's okay, because we win. I know a lot of you come up to me every week and tell stories of what Jesus did this week in your life. And how often people look and you go, wow, how is it you have so much passion? How is it that you know, you know so much about this? It's like, man, I can tell you about those in the church that have those stories. They put it on the line. They just put it out there, knowing that Jesus is going to finish it off. And it's kind of a funny thing. The more you do that, you, you just step out in faith and go, you open the door, God, you're going to have to do this. God says, perfect, that's the way it works. I do it. You step. And he does. And you have these wonderful stories, and other people are scratching their head. Why do all these amazing things happen to that gal? Because she's putting it out there. And every day, Jesus meets her. Count the cost. But no, it is going to cost. It's going to cost all your personal, selfish desires. The best seat at the table. The air of piety, the sense of being so gracious and hospitable, or this security that I'm going to eat bread in the kingdom. Forget about all of that. When Jesus sent the disciples out, 70 of them, and they came back and they said, we saw, you know, demons cast out and all these things. And Jesus says, man, I saw Satan cast from heaven. But don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. Now, I say this because these are, these are warnings. This is negative feedback. Be really, really careful when you get too pumped up about all the fantastic things that Jesus is doing through you. That's a good time just to humble down. Just recognize it wasn't me. It's all Jesus, and it'll keep you in a safe place. But if, if not you have a tendency to grow into a Pharisee. If you start reading your own headlines, your own publicity, you want to be careful about that a little bit. And that's where Jesus is kind of going with all of this. Um, and finally, verse 33, I'll pick up. And so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. You know, in so many ways, it's one of the simplest things in the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ. God knows you're a sinner. He gave his son. You confess Jesus is your Lord. You're forgiven. You become a child of God and you go to heaven. Simple. Anybody can do that. Least common denominator. Everybody can do that. And God made it so simple. And all you have to do is forsake all. Just give it all up. Just let it all go. It's super simple. It's not easy. It's not easy to give up who I am, my position, my whatever things I might be proud of. It's not easy, but it's super simple. So you don't have to every day go back into the Bible and go, is it lawful to heal this man on the Sabbath? Keep it simple, saints. Do it. And finally, verse 34, last of the examples, false witnesses. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who hears has ears to hear, let him hear. Salt, right? It's a preservative. It's a, it, it, it adds flavor and zest. It creates thirst. But in all of this, Jesus has already taught us we should be salt and light. We need to be having an influence in the world around us. We're having a meeting in just a couple of minutes. We call it our salt and light council. And it's an opportunity for us to get the salt out of the salt shaker and get it out onto a decaying world that needs preservative, out onto a world that's lost its flavor and give it just that taste, that thirst for Christ, that people would hunger for the good word. And so Jesus is admonishing us that we need to be that salt, but if you've lost your flavor, 
you're really not of any value to the kingdom. Now, it sounds like I'm telling you this. I'm not. Jesus is telling them that. Those who came to that dinner, those who are following, those who think that it's a free lunch, those who are thinking that they're self-secured in all of these things, he goes, man, keep it simple. Just get a little salty. Get out there and add joy to the world. Add hope to the world. Add truth to the world. Bring Jesus to the world and fulfill the great commission. And don't be lulled into these false senses of religiosity. That's not how we do it, team. Okay? And again, maybe I'm a little preachy this morning. I don't know. But I've been running into an awful lot of people lately that just don't seem to get this Jesus thing. They make it so complicated, and they don't understand. It's just not that hard. It's Jesus. It's just Jesus. And I know, I struggled with this for a long time. That sounds good, but how do you just do just Jesus? you got to take steps of faith, a little bit at a time. Pray a prayer. Lord Jesus, here's a good one. You could pray this one with me. In fact, why don't you pray with me right now? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help me to keep my walk with you simple, to abide in you, to hold tight onto you. And today, when you put in front of me somebody who needs you, Help me do it in Jesus' name. There you go. You prayed it. All we got to do is do it. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.